So in our second week of Foretold, we're going through the four Gospels. Our second week, we're turning to the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, if you recall, we looked at Mark, which isn't exactly what we normally think of as a Christmas story. We didn't have any shepherds or wise men. We didn't even have the birth of Jesus. We, we had the beginning of the Gospel, and we went straight into John the Baptist preaching for repentance. Now we're turning a bit more to what we normally think of, And if we think of last week as a picture of the expression that we need a Savior who is going to redeem us, this week we're thinking about what does it mean when God calls us to wait for that Savior, to wait for his action. I found myself thinking about this in all kinds of different forms. Most of us spend a lot of time in our lives waiting. We spend time waiting for Christmas, for example. And and one of the things I, I love at Christmas is the chance to bring out my Christmas ties. As you know, sometimes I wear ties here, sometimes I don't. But at Christmas, you're going to see me with a tie every time because I want to wear my Christmas ties. I have been waiting all year to bring this guy out. <laughs> I mean, it's time. <laughs> Love it. I, I was waiting for him, yeah. I mean, how can you just leave him in the drawer? I mean, come on, yeah. So, you know, we wait for lots of things. And, and some things are happy things like that. Like, I, I can't wait to bring out my Christmas ties. Other things feel agonizing in the wait because we don't know what the wait means. A a number of years ago, what, oh boy, uh, 10 years ago now, I guess? 12 years ago. Oh, 12 12 years ago now, uh, I had to take a standardized test to get into a a program of study that I wanted to do. And and so I did preparation. If you've taken a standardized test in any setting before, you probably had a guide that you needed to go over, a study guide of some sort, getting ready for it. And and then you go and you take the test. And uh, this one was so different from what I'd experienced before that because they, you know, amped up the technology and security. They had a security camera on you while you were taking the test. Uh, you, you couldn't put your hands under the desk. You, you were permitted one official piece of paper and one official Kleenex. And so the whole process felt intense. And, and then you get done with it. And then, and then there's the wait. What's going to come of it? You know, we don't take standardized tests. I don't know anyone at least that takes standardized tests for fun. We take it to get somewhere, whether it's in your job or your school, whatever you might be doing. And so then you have the wait. How'd it go? Is it enough? Am I enough? You know, what, what am I going to do? And what happens if it doesn't work? And, and what should I do in the meantime? Because I don't know what the outcome is going to be. And I think one of the questions we, we are presented with when we look at the life of Joseph is the challenge, can we be faithful as we wait? God calls us to be faithful even as we wait. And can we be faithful as we wait? And, and let's come before our God And if there's something that you're waiting on right now, as we open in prayer, maybe just present that before God and think about what it's going to mean to be faithful in that way. Let's pray. Lord, we we come before you. We wait for different things. Some of them are exciting. We're looking forward to different parts of the Christmas season, for example. And other things, we think, why am I still waiting? The wait feels too long. Father, would you help us that we would see how you're working even in the waiting? Would you help us to be faithful in that waiting, recognizing that you are faithful? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's go ahead and turn now to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Let's see, I turned off my remote. There we are. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her name to sh- put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We know this story, but if you think about it, when we think of the cheery pictures of Christmas, this isn't exactly the cheery picture of Christmas that we think of either, right? We're starting off with a discussion of divorce. I mean, Merry Christmas, right? It, it, imagine if you're Joseph, though. And, and one thing we need to understand about the situation that Joseph is in here is that betrothal of, of the time is sort of like what we think of as engagement now, but it was more in the sense that it was legally binding. So while they weren't yet living in the same house married, they were already legally pledged to each other, such that when it says that Joseph considered divorce, that would be what he needed to do if it needed to be called off. He couldn't just uh, walk away. It wasn't just a matter of who keeps the engagement ring or whatever else. It was an actual legal process that needed to be embarked upon. So, so that's the setting here that they're, they're pledged to be married. They're legally bound to be married. And then Joseph finds out that Mary's expecting a, a baby and, and he has to decide what is he going to do. And, and so he has to decide what, what's right in this. He doesn't know what's going on. I mean, there's speculation on how much did Mary reveal? How much did he listen to what Mary had to reveal? Those sorts of things. Like, did Mary start to say, well, you know, the angel Gabriel appeared to me and he said, I, I don't want to hear it. Did he listen to it? Did he ponder it a little bit? We're not told. What we do know is that it seems he comes to the conclusion something has gone terribly wrong here. Not an unreasonable conclusion. And he has to decide, what, what is he going to do next? Because he might have asked, you know, I, I thought, God, you, were this, you had this plan for my life. I thought you had brought me uh, Mary into my life and that this was going to be a wonderful thing. And now it just seems like everything's broken and coming apart. What does faithfulness look like in this moment? Well, to prove his own faithfulness, it would seem what is called for in the moment is to humiliate Mary as much as possible. Now, did that involve stoning her? That certainly was legally permissible. It doesn't happen every time. But at the very least, what would often happen in a case like this, where, where the betrothed was being accused of unfaithfulness, is that you would at least make a public spectacle of her so that everyone knew that she had been the unfaithful one. And what would that do for Joseph? That would ensure that people would look at Joseph and think, here is an upright man, poor Joseph, with Mary the unfaithful, that he is now divorced. But what are we told here? It says, verse 19, and, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What does it mean to be just in a situation like this? That's something Joseph has to wrestle with, and he has to wrestle with perhaps waiting. Maybe he's been praying, and he's waiting for God to, to say something, but he doesn't have an answer. And so he has to decide in that waiting, how am I going to be faithful in the waiting? And faithful in waiting like this comes down to what is, 
being faithful in general? He doesn't have a specific answer yet. He doesn't have a way to know that this is of God. And so what he has to decide is, what would be the God-honoring thing to do full stop? And this is where we can kind of get bound up because we, we start thinking, well, if, if God would just answer my prayer, what in the world's going on here? How should I make sense of it? Then I'd know what the faithful thing is to do. And, and either we, we'd revert back to our normal human reflexes. Joseph could have said, well, I want revenge. Mary has just humiliated me. He, she's broken my heart. She's, done, she's just been a horrible person. I want revenge. Or he could have just sort of frozen in paralysis. I, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to sit here. He doesn't do either of those. He, he decides to re- divorce her quietly. And in a way, we might say, well, you know, um, that sounds like he's taking it out on Mary. But what he's actually doing is saying, okay, so something is terribly broken here. So we can't go forward. But I don't want to ruin Mary over it. And in fact, by divorcing her quietly, what is he doing? He's actually allowing a cloud of suspicion to to fall on him. Uh, He's not making a public spectacle of her so everyone knows that Joseph's in the clear. He's going to do it quietly where there'll probably always be questions. What happened there? What was Joseph's role? What do we make of Joseph? So when Matthew says that that Joseph was a just man, he clearly means something more than pure justice. Pure justice in, in the strictest, legalist sense would mean drag Mary out and humiliate her so she gets what's coming for her. Mm-hmm. That's not what he did. Instead, he, he showed a similar form of justice to what we see in the early life of the future King David. If we look at 1 Samuel 24, verse 17. David has cornered Saul... Saul's going after him for no good reason. And Saul realizes that. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Now, if we take Saul as word, and Saul is actually accurate at this point, if Saul is doing evil, David could, could take out a punishment upon Saul seemingly righteously. If there's a battle between the illegitimate king who has disobeyed God and the anointed one who's meant to be king, and David had attacked Saul and used the advantage to take the kingdom, by every worldly account, he would have been righteous. But in that moment of clarity, Saul realizes there's a different righteousness that God operates by, and he he looks at David and realizes that David doesn't demand what's owed to him in that moment but rather what's pleasing to God. David chose mercy. And in God's righteousness, mercy is interwoven constantly in it. The whole story of the gospel is a story of righteousness that is colored with mercy. If you want the righteous righteous act to happen, you might even say it's tainted by mercy because that mercy is getting in the way of what we want in a cut and dry human fashion. And all this, as we go back to the story of Joseph, is happening in the context in which he doesn't have any real reason to believe anything's going on other than that Mary has been unfaithful to him. He's hurting like a normal human being in this situation. He feels betrayed by Mary, presumably. And what does he do? He, he shows mercy. 
No, he's not going to, to take her as his wife because she's been unfaithful. You know, this is a per- perfectly legitimate reason for him to walk away. And yet he doesn't want everything that's owed to him. He simply wants to, to move on, to show some grace in the process. And maybe one thing that's helpful for us to keep in mind here, we, we have this, this paragraph here that we're, we're looking at tonight, this passage and it, it feels like it's all tightly compressed together here. We have the, the, the origin of the story here. Here's Mary. She's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph learns about it. Then we're going to get to in a moment, Joseph has encounters an angel and so on and so forth. It feels like it's just all one thing. It's very tightly packed. But, but imagine you're Joseph. You're talking about an experience covering nine months. And... Whatever hopes and dreams he had for them, whatever he was expecting would, would happen, while nine months in the span of our lives sometimes goes by really quickly, when something's going wrong and we're waiting months and months to find out a solution to it, we've all been in situations like this um, where, where we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. If something's going wrong in your life and it's not an answer the next day or the next week, next month. It doesn't feel very quick. And in that waiting, we have to figure out, what in the world am I going to do? And that's the context in which Joseph makes this decision, that he's going to seek not to humiliate Mary. Now, of course, as we know, and we'll look at that more next week, Mary, of course, is innocent here. And so this is a, a matter of, of lack of understanding on Joseph's part, but not an unreasonable one. There's nothing wrong in what Joseph's doing here. In the circumstance, he's rising to the occasion and seeking to show something of the mercy we experience from God. How am I going to be faithful in waiting? And we're going to get to the next part of how Joseph has to deal with this, but as we think about this ambiguous time of waiting... I think it's so important to dwell there for a moment because how often is it that that's where we are? We don't have an angel coming and appearing to us and interpreting what's going on in that waiting. We don't have a clear prophecy we see in the Old Testament that explains how the pieces come together once it's at least pointed out to us. We're just waiting, just like Joseph is here. And, and in that kind of waiting, we can think of that waiting as a stage. We're, we're setting the stage for something, and we can choose to respond just paralyzed, unable to do anything, in which case we're not setting up for what God's doing next because we're just not moving at all. We can go back to that sort of knee-jerk reaction. I'm going to demand what's owed to me. I'm going to try to, to overpower those who have wronged me, that sort of thing. And then we're setting up a stage for our own human sin to be put on full display. Or we can choose to do what we see here, which is to take what we know at that time and seek to be as faithful as possible in the moment. Joseph's not a a perfect man. He's a sinful man like us. But in this moment, as God's preparing to reveal something incredible to him, he's presented with that choice and he chooses to start putting together a stage for God to do something. God's going to use this faithfulness. And it's, it's that quiet moment there in that little bitty space between sentences in, in our Bibles that I think is so telling. Before we race on, think about this for a moment. 
What were Joseph's hopes and dreams? Did he have a house that he had been planning that he and Mary were going to share? Had they talked about where they, what they were hoping would come of life? Were they, had they been dreaming for years of this moment and now it's broken? What was in this moment? What was Joseph seeing come apart? I have to think part of the reason that God allows Joseph into the story of, of God coming into the world to be with us is because of this moment here in that, that space between the sentences where he has to decide, how am I going to dwell in this waiting? That's the challenge for us. How am I going to use that? Part of that is a question we need to ask ourselves, a question about how are we going to approach life when it doesn't go the way that we expect it to, uh, the question of am I willing to be redirected? And sometimes that's going to be a very natural sort of redirection, like it is up to this point for Joseph. Am I willing to recognize, okay, things aren't working as they should, but I now need to see how I can be an agent of God's grace in this broken situation I find myself in? Am I willing to be redirected to be the, the hands and feet, the mouth of God in that moment? Or am I going to cling to what I thought should be so firmly that I can't be? One of my favorite Christmas movies is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. <laughs> I, 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 I never stop laughing watching through that movie. I, you know, it has so many hilarious moments. But if you think about the overall plot, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. I hope I don't spoil this for anybody. But if you think <coughs> about it, it's kind of heartbreaking because what does... All of a sudden, I blanked on his name. Cliff, right? Isn't it Cliff? Yeah. yeah. Cliff? Yeah. What does Cliff want? He wants the perfect family Christmas. And if you think about it, everything that, that's going on is building up to that. You have the little advent calendar actually that's being opened up. It's the countdown to the perfect family Christmas. And he has the perfect family gift, the brand new pool that, that he's going to surprise his family with. Everything is going to be perfect. But of course, it wouldn't have been a very amusing movie if everything were perfect. And it, it keeps getting less and less perfect as the relatives show up. And, and they don't want the perfect family Christmas. They're all in it for themselves. And they're all looking out for their different things. And you have explosions happening outside. And the lights <laughs> won't stay on. And then, of course, the bonus that doesn't come. And he gets the Fruit of the Month Club instead. Well, I definitely don't recommend taking the approach he takes to solve that problem. Kidnapping is never a good idea. But if you think about it, what's driving him to the utter point of insanity? His tree's been incinerated. His lights are out. Everything is going wrong. Now he's in debt because he's committed to this pool and he's found out he's not getting the bonus that he was supposed to get. Everything has come apart. And he's not willing to be redirected in that moment. He's going to, if it takes kidnapping his boss, he's going to do it because this is what it has to be and it's going to be a great Christmas if he has to commit criminal acts to make it a great Christmas. What happens that's so touching, I believe, at the end of that movie is, is the fact that in the end, in all of the, the stuff that's been broken, there's a moment where it's just Christmas together. It's not any of the things that he's pulled together. 
he's finally forced to sort of just embrace the moment. And I have to say, a lot of times I'm more like him than I'd like to be. I'm going to, I'm not going to let go of whatever I think is how it was supposed to be if it kills me. And Joseph could have done that, but he doesn't. And I think that is something that's certainly important this time of year, but important throughout the year as we think about how is God working in my life? Am I clinging to the things that I think should be to the point that I'm going to do wrong things even to somehow bring them about when they're not coming? Or am I willing to be redirected when clearly that's not the way life's going? Joseph doesn't just roll over and say nothing. But he seeks to know in this unexpected brokenness, how can he be redirected to do what is pleasing to God? Now, then he has something happen that normally doesn't happen to us, which is that an angel appears. Wouldn't that be nice if that happened? Mm -hmm. But if you think about it for a moment, we see angels appear in Scripture, and sometimes people respond very positively to them. Sometimes people miss the point entirely. Sometimes God interacts with people over and over again, like Abraham, and Abraham still keeps going back and acting like Cliff. I mean, he, he doesn't lie about who his wife is and hand her over to somebody once, but twice because he's fearing for his life for crying out loud. I mean, I, I think sometimes we say, well, if only I had the same access to God that the people in the Bible had, I'd, it'd be a whole lot easier. What we see is it really isn't. You have the disciples right around Jesus, and it isn't. The question is, am I, being, am I willing to have that redirection into where God's leading? even when it's just the circumstances changing. And I have to decide, how am I going to be faithful in that? Because that then sets up Joseph for this dream and what he's going to do afterwards. And let's go ahead and take a look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's an awful lot going on here. But what it really boils down to is that Joseph, in that first part, before he encounters the angel, is being redirected to think about how do I apply God's grace in this moment? And then God comes along and opens up a further door. Here's what you're actually going to do, Joseph. And notably, imagine if, if Joseph had done what he, in all legal rights, could have done up to that point. It would have been a, a far, far worse situation. How would you ever fix that situation? If he'd brought out Mary and publicly divorced her and humiliated her, had her stoned, well, I mean, all those things would have obviously been a real problem. Now, God's sovereign. He could have done something else. But here he's working through Joseph's faithfulness. And then he directs Joseph further. And, and as much as I struggle to be redirected... 
I also suspect most of us, when we finally let go of something that we've been wrestling and holding on to, and we allow God to redirect us, we start to see maybe, presumably, most often, not with an angel appearing to us, but in some way, we start to see, oh, this is why God is pushing me here. Story for another time, some of you already know it, but but the, the work that has come about to bring about little hills being planted includes an awful lot of times where I was playing more like Cliff, trying to hold on to things, and God kept redirecting and redirecting and redirecting so that we could be here now. And I wish I were Joseph all the time in those things. I wish I were Joseph most of the time in all those things. And a lot of times it takes a lot more of being Cliff, going and, and kidnapping bosses first, <laughs> rather than than trying to figure out how do I show a mercy beyond whatever could be demanded. But of course, Jesus is going to show the same, right? If you think about it, what Joseph does here is a little bit of a picture of what we desperately need from God. In this moment, and I wonder if this goes through Joseph's head, he doesn't know the fullness of what's going to happen, but before Joseph even hears from the angels, he's thinking, but I need mercy from God, so I'm going to show mercy to Mary. Well, in that, in that situation that he then finds himself in, he's going to get to be a first-hand witness to mercy coming into the world. He's going to be there when Jesus, God incarnate as human flesh, says his first words. And he walks. And he grows up. People have speculated, and I think rightly so, that that Joseph presumably taught Jesus a trade. He probably taught Jesus how to be a carpenter. And, and can you imagine how, how amazing it would be to, to know what was promised about Jesus and he gets to be there and see God incarnate, a perfect human being. He's not like the other kids and yet he's also a, a kid. He gets to be a part of that. We don't hear a lot more about Joseph But how amazing the moments that he gets to experience, the, 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 the space between the sentences here where the waiting happens. And if the first challenge that we see in this is faithfulness in the waiting, I think the second one is waiting in faithfulness. That sounds sort of like the same thing, but I think they're a little different. Because now that he knows what's going on, he could have heard this dream and thought, okay, everything's going to be great, but then he, he says, okay, I'm going to, I'll take Mary as my wife, we're going to go on, but we can't pretend nothing happened. Now there's this baby here, and what do you know? Well, there were some spectacular things right as Jesus was born, and then a little bit later with the wise men, then they go on to year after year after year in which none of that happens. Sure, there's promise, promises here that, that the angel has said about how Jesus is going to save people from their sins, and yet he's a kid. He's a teenager. Maybe the, well, not maybe, the best teenager ever, but he's a teenager. He's not saving anyone from their sins as far as Joseph can tell. You know, at best, he's, he's learning how to build things and occasionally impressing the people at the temple. How do you wait in those moments? Even when you have clarity of where God's leading, we're still waiting and saying, but when's something going to happen? 
And if you're Joseph, if you're Mary, couldn't you even think, well, okay, he's going to be born, he's a baby, but he's going to be a baby who talks immediately and preaches whatever we need for salvation right from the manger. It's going to happen. No, no, he's not doing it. No. Here, Mary, did you know? But we could also ask Joseph, did you know? I mean, what did Joseph know and how, how was he processing it? And how often, even when we have clarity, this is where God's placed me, I need to be here, I know I need to be here, I have peace that I need to be here, but I don't understand why. How do we hold on to faith in those moments? There's a lot promised, and we know it's going to come. For example, it's interesting that the word used, your commentators have noted, that, that Joseph doesn't desire to, to put Mary to shame, that word shows up again later on in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. Talking about Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Joseph doesn't seek to put Mary to shame, but, but the, the spiritual powers of the world that, that want to, to turn us away from God and, and lead us into utter destruction, Jesus is going to put them to shame. The ones that really need to be put to shame, Jesus will put to shame. Matthew 28, what do we see beyond God's victory? We also see that God is with us, the, the living out of Emmanuel. As, as Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, not only, he's not only telling them to teach things, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, but note what he says here, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God with us. So the promises are fulfilled But by the time they're fulfilled, we have every reason to think Joseph isn't even alive. We know that Mary is there at the crucifixion, but Joseph doesn't seem to be around. We have every reason to think he, at some point before that time, had passed away. And so Joseph doesn't even see the fulfillment of these promises that he spent his life anticipating. He just has to be faithful in the waiting. He gets to see glimmers of it. And oftentimes that's how it is for us. We get to see glimmers of what God is doing and think about how different it is now for us that we're told that the Holy Spirit dwells in us when we turn to Jesus as our Lord, that, that all of us get to experience Emmanuel, God with us. But what's it like when you're Joseph and God with us means a baby in the house that's acting like a baby? does it mean then? What's he supposed to think then? Our human cynicism comes to play at times like that. Our human doubts, even maybe you start, you could almost imagine Joseph, and this is in there, maybe he never did, but you could almost imagine him starting to think, did I really encounter an angel in that dream? Or had I eaten too much for dinner the night before because I was depressed about what had happened with Mary and I had a really vivid dream? You can almost imagine him thinking something like that because nothing's happening. Checks in the mail, right? We, we use that phrase and we always mean to imply, of course, the check isn't in the mail because when people promise us really spectacular things and they don't, they're not right there, present, manifest where we can grab onto them, experience teaches us a lot of times it doesn't happen at all. 
And it makes it challenging for us in, in our fallen state that we're in when we read the promises of God that haven't yet happened, when we read about how he's going to restore us fully, when we read about how he's going to conquer all of sin, that sin is actually already defeated and someday it will be gone, and we think, is that a check in the mail? Hmm. But God is faithful, and, and I believe that is how Joseph is able to cling to this, is that as he's waiting, he's waiting in the faithfulness of God. He knows that he can't make things right, he knows he's going to live with a shadow over him as he goes back to the village and people look at him and Mary and wonder what in the world's been going on. All he can do is look to God and God's promises and, and he can't say, well, you know, you should quit whispering behind our backs because that, that little kid right there that's with us, that's Emmanuel, that's God with us. And they'll say, yeah, right. Even when Jesus is teaching with authority, and there's any talk of him being God with us, what do people do? They want to throw him off the side of the, the cliff. They want to stone him to death. So imagine what that means for Joseph and Mary. Are we willing to wait patiently? Romans 8.25 But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It comes down to hope. Hmm. Are we hoping and who God is. Are we hoping in his promises that, yes, this doesn't make sense, but somehow God's going to do it? And if you think about life in general, that's sort of a, a summary of it. Because we have some good times, things seem to be going pretty well, and then something goes wrong. And we know at some point we're going to, to die. And you think about no matter how hard we try, we're still going to get to that point. And so it sort of seems like the whole, whole, picture of life doesn't really make any sense unless we have hope that God's going to do something more. That's what he, exactly what he tells us he's going to do. And whether Joseph got to see enough of what Jesus was doing, whether he saw, ever saw a miracle at all, I believe he, he was dwelling in the hope of God. And that's what enables him to live and do faithful things in the moment, not on his own. Joseph wasn't some special man who had superpowers of faith. He was like you and he was like me. But he was dwelling in God's hope. What are we going to do in difficult circumstances? Joseph follows the prompting of God. And, and he starts out with that, what we talked about at the beginning. He does what seems to be the most merciful thing he can do in the moment. And as God reveals more fully what's going on, he follows what God leads him to do. He's receptive to changing plans, to seeing what God's doing. And then he goes and he follows and he marries Mary and he names Jesus exactly as the, the angel told him to. Once again, it says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. What do we do in the waiting? That's a question I, I, I found myself thinking about sometime in the last week or so when I was on hold for a very long time calling up customer service. What do you do in those moments when, when you hear the pre-recorded message? We value you as a customer. Your call is so important to us and will be answered in the order it was received. Your current estimated wait time is 45 minutes. And you think, I don't feel very important. 
And as that drags on, and in my particular case, the wait time wasn't said to be 45 minutes, it was to be two minutes, and I waited 45 minutes. By the time I got to the end of that 45-minute wait and I heard the little click and I knew the operator was coming on, it was a bit more of a battle to be faithful in that moment because I wasn't in a very good mood waiting that long. And hearing the same music over and over and over again. Why is it the longer you wait, the more they repeat the music, do you think, rather than at least shuffling? I mean, they could shuffle through thousands of songs, no trouble anymore, and yet they don't. It's the same song over and over again. Do you feel at times like your life is like being put on hold? And, and you, you read scripture and it, says, and, and it says, your life is very important to me, and yet you wonder, but how long is the estimated wait time, God, before I experience that? And in a moment like this, I think Joseph might have at times wondered, God, how long is it going to take? But what are, what are we going to do in those moments? Or are we coming before God's word? Are we coming before God in prayer? Are we studying his word in such a way that he's preparing the stage of our lives so that when the whole music ends and he's ready to do his next act with us, that we're ready for it. That's what he's calling us to. The Christmas story, if you think about it, as we think about the different people involved over and over again is a story of waiting from the longest ago promise of the Messiah to everyone involved with it. And it ends with more waiting, waiting for Jesus to grow up, waiting for him to take on the sin of the world, waiting for him to rise out of that grave, then waiting for him now to return. Christmas story is about waiting, but it's not meaningless waiting, it's waiting in faithfulness. Are we going to be what God's called us to be in the moment? Whatever it is that you're waiting on in this moment. I don't know what... I know some of the things that that those of you here are waiting on in this moment. I don't know all of them. But we're all waiting, waiting to see what God's going to do. And I believe the call here is that we don't lose sight of faithfulness in that moment. But we turn to him, we allow him to redirect us. We read his promises and we know, unlike that hold music that often gives an incorrect estimated wait time, that what God says he's going to do actually happens. And so we can trust, even as we wait, even as we wait what seems like at times an agonizing amount of time, that God is going to answer. He's going to work. He's going to do exactly what he said. That's what I need to hear over and over again, and that's what all of us need to hear. God is faithful. And God's faithful as we wait in faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, as we wait, we wait for Christmas Day and the celebration, but we wait in our lives for the different ways you are going to work. A lot of times it feels perplexing. A lot of times it feels like maybe it's utterly pointless. And yet we know that you work in the waiting. You work by placing us waiting around others who who need our encouragement, who need our love. You work in the waiting by preparing our own hearts for the work that you have for us. You work in the waiting by drawing us closer to you and closer to the day when, when all things are made new. And Lord, would you help us that in each moment we might be found faithful in waiting, not in our own power, but in yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.